Welcome to another edition of Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here, as always. And today we have on um, the founder, CEO, head dog <laughs> over at thereload.com, Stephen Gutowski. Stephen, it's good to have you on. How are you doing? Hi, it's good to be here. I'm doing doing pretty good. It's been a busy week. <laughs> yeah, we got well, there's a lot of a lot of stuff that's going that you guys have been getting into this week. I want to get into, but maybe let's unpack why you are who you are and exactly what the reload is obviously it has a gun title so it's tied up to guns but what's the interest in guns why report on guns um what, what got you into this line of work yeah certainly i mean the, the reload is uh an independent outlet it's funded by subscribers exclusively at this point and uh it focuses on sober serious firearms journalism and analysis that's that's the mission statement for the publication i'm the founder uh and i do most of the writing there as well we have a contributing editor paul crookston who, uh, who edits the pieces, uh, as the name implies. But um, yeah, I've, I've been reporting on firearms, uh, politics and policy and, and culture for uh, the better part of a decade now. I was with the Washington Free Beacon previously for about seven years. Um, I've been on the, the cover of, of Time Magazine <laughs> um, and uh, won several awards, uh, including two Tally Awards for a show I did called Range Time. Um, and I'm hoping to bring that sort of professionalism uh, and classic journalism standards to the reload and focus exclusively on firearms reporting with it. Uh, and I think we've had a lot of success so far. It's, it's only been about three months, mm -hmm. but um, you know, we've broken a number of, of big, significant, exclusive stories. So uh, I've been really happy with it and it's gotten a lot of support as well from from readers who've uh, signed up to be subscribers uh you know of course subscribers also get access to you know, exclusive posts uh and and my analysis of different issues uh every week so uh i think it's a hopefully a good deal for everybody involved yeah absolutely and we'll be sure to link to that in the show notes so people can go uh, and check that out so how do you um, and so I won't ask you to give your position if you want to. I'll take my position. I'm a libertarian, very much pro-gun. Um, I don't know. I have questions about what the founders intended by the Second Amendment. Um, and I think that shapes some of the talks around um, gun policy today. You know, we have potentially what the founders intended for, but we also have the reality of the world that we lived in. When you cover it, how do you bring those perspectives in? Do you try to go back and, and say, well, this is just the, the framework that politicians are talking about, and so I'm kind of reporting on that? Or do you kind of contrast it with maybe what historic gun policy and historic arguments have been? How do you think through that? Because it's it's a convoluted mess, to be, to be quite honest with you, if you kind of walk through history on it. Sure. Well, uh, you know, I, I'm a gun owner. I, I'm a certified firearm safety instructor. Uh, you know, I, I care a lot about this issue um, on a personal level, and I've spent a lot of time studying it. Um, and I think that brings a different level of uh, expertise to my reporting that you don't see in most other outlets. Um, and at the same time, I've spent uh, you know most of my my entire career in uh, Washington D.C. So, or just outside of Washington D.C. Really, and I live in Virginia. But um, I think that also gives me a better perspective on you know, what is really happening on the Hill um, uh, than you might see in some other gun publications. So I, I think that I, I'm able to bring a, a unique point of view that's informed on both 
the firearm side of things and the political side of things because usually you you can only get one or the other <laughs> out there in, in a lot of cases not not every case but most like major media outlets might have a lot of reporters on the hill that know what's going on there but they don't usually know much about firearms um and a lot of gun publications know a lot about firearms uh but they don't know as much about the politics in in dc so uh you know i, I try to present a as reasonable uh writing as i can and i try to bring in perspectives from all kinds of people on uh, we have a podcast uh that I do as well, where, where I bring in people who have expertise on the topic and uh, they could be from all sorts of different points of view. Uh, I try not to lock it down too much to be just an echo chamber that where people, you know, have their own opinions screamed back at them. Uh, there's a lot of that out there already. And I don't think we need another outlet like that. So, you know, the reload is trying to be something a bit different in that sense and trying to be sober and, and reasonable and, and, uh, open to all different perspectives without at the same time uh, letting people get away with lies. You know, it, you know, the truth is the foundation for what I'm trying to do. So, uh, you know, I'm not just going to have anyone on to just say anything um, necessarily, but I will have somebody on who's informed and reasonable who I might disagree with personally, or my readers might not agree with uh, or what have you. But uh, that's how I try to, approach things yeah so something you said there or two things really first you talked about the balance of the policy side in dc versus kind of the, the gun side so down here in texas you know we're a bunch of gun toting rednecks you know and uh you're up there in dc with all them pretty boys and on the hill and you're <laughs> out of touch with america and as someone who follows, you know, the political stuff, um, being tied up with oil, gas, and kind of some international stuff, um, it, it's it's interesting to watch from afar the DC stuff because there. I'll give you an example. Um, I don't. Within the last month, I think it was the House rolled out a bill to legalize marijuana. I think, um, or it was in a committee, maybe. And okay, it kind of made some news, but at the end of the day any serious political commentator that followed that story realized it was more for show and tell. They weren't really trying to push it through, but you know, if you're a, maybe a marijuana lobbyist, maybe it makes you someone happy. You know, who knows? Um, now there's a lot anti- of stuff like that. Yeah. right. There's a lot of stuff like that. So if you're an anti-marijuana person, legalization, you could jump on that and pounce on like, Oh, here they come legalization and not trying to get into that issue per se. It's just, that's an easy example for me to go. Okay. This is politics at its finest here. How do you sift through that stuff where it's just posturing and positioning and it's they're not actually trying to do anything on the right or the left? Yeah, I think that's a great point because this this is extremely common with, with guns, right? With gun legislation, one way or the other, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's somebody proposing a, a bill that, that gun rights advocates love and would you know love to see become law. Uh, all, all sorts of things, even mainstream policies, uh, more or more mainstream policies like uh, the Hearing Protection Act, which would uh, deregulate the uh, silencers or suppressors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of support behind that, uh, realistic support, political support on the Hill, but it's still not going to pass right. <laughs> because there aren't the the numbers. You know, a lot of this boils down to like you got to look at the makeup of Congress before you make any assumptions about any of these bills, mm-hmm. um, and you have to have some sort of 
knowledge about, you know, what, what the breakdown of, uh, Congress is right now. And so like you look at, for instance, today's Congress, um, it, it's very difficult to pass anything gun related through this Congress mm-hmm. because while Democrats have control of the presidency, the Senate and the house, they have very tenuous grip on the Senate and the house. I mean, the Senate is literally 50, 50. And so you have to rely on a tiebreaker, mm-hmm. uh, which means you also have to keep all 50 Democrats on board with something in order to pass it. And the Senate also has uh, the filibuster, which requires a 60 vote threshold to get something through that body, uh, which makes, which is designed and intended to make them create bipartisan compromises. And there just isn't much in the way of bipartisan compromise on gun policy right now. So it's very difficult to look at any of the policies being talked about, uh, especially the more extreme ones on either side or the more, uh, you know, the ones that activists get more excited about, whether it's gun control activists or gun rights activists, and see a path to 60 votes for any of those. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's why there's been so much fighting over the filibuster from from the left. They want to get rid of it so that they can pass everything. In theory, it would make it easier for them to pass everything they want uh, without having to get any sort of compromise from from Republicans. And, um, you know, it's just not realistic to think that something like uh, an assault weapons ban, for instance, right? That there's a lot of talk about that on, on both sides, but there's not really any realistic path for that to become law at this point. And as much as the president wants it and every gun control activist wants it, because uh, they certainly do and they're very vocal about it, there isn't a path that's not even going to pass the House of Representatives, which doesn't have a filibuster and can just pass things on a simple majority vote. But they won't do that because they ha- there's moderate members of the Democratic caucus who don't want to vote for an assault weapons ban uh, in reality. And so they're not going to even try, most likely, uh, barring some sort of you know spectacular event like a Sandy Hook or, or Las Vegas or something like that. Uh, it's unlikely that they're even going to bring up that legislation for a vote and even um, a more popular piece of policy like the like universal background checks, which polls much better than than assault weapons bans, that's not likely to get through the Senate. They passed it through the House. They passed a very expanded version of it through the House. In fact, uh, that would make every gun transfer require a background check. So if you wanted to lend a gun to a friend, you'd have to get a background check. You have to go to an FFL a gun store and have them do a background check before you can lend your friend the gun um, for, you know, self-defense purposes. There are some exceptions, but it's, you know, the, the point is it's a very broad law and that law that the house passed isn't going to pass the Senate. Uh, and even uh, a slimmed down version of it, like uh mansion to me compromised back in uh, 2013, that was the well, last gun control bill to get uh, like four, 54 votes. Mm-hmm. at the time uh that wouldn't pass wouldn't get 60 today either it might not even get as many as it got back in 2013 so you know you just have to have uh an understanding of the politics of congress um yeah same thing going back to the trump administration right trump when trump won he had control of this the, you know his party had control of the senate and the house and in theory everyone thinks well you can pass anything if you have control of all three right you know, levers there. But the reality is, again, there's still the filibuster. They didn't have 60 votes in the Senate uh, and they still had moderate members. 
in you know both chambers that are not likely to support uh, you know more adventurous gun policies. So with even with the NRA, uh, which was you know in better standing back in 2016, <laughs> yeah. uh, so, you know making the Hearing Protection Act its top priority, it didn't pass because uh, the it couldn't get 60 votes in the Senate. Now I, I I would say that like generally speaking, gun policy, gun gun rights policy, is more popular in the Senate than gun control policy. So you probably could get more votes. You get closer to 60 with something like the Hearing Protection Act, which doesn't really do that much. It takes suppressors out of the NFA. Makes you still have to get a background check to buy them. Uh, uh, but you don't have to register them and pay the tax stamp and go through the whole process. Um, but even still, that wasn't able to get 60 votes because it's just um, there's a there's a big stalemate, and there has been for decades now, I guess you could right. say, uh, at the federal level on gun policy. There just hasn't been much movement. There hasn't been much innovation in policy. There's all the same policies that everyone's been arguing about since the 80s, and uh, – there just isn't much movement either way on that stuff at this point. Okay. You hit on several things there. I want to bring up um, first off, uh, maybe unpack what is and isn't legal. You talk about a ban on assault rifles. So, so for people who don't know um, what kind of guns can people generally own? Obviously I'm sure there's uh, rules that are kind of more localized, but just at a mm -hmm. high overarching, you know, what is legal when you say assault rifle for people who don't know about guns, what does that mean? Uh, you kind of break down semi-automatic, you know, just, just kind of a, Quick gun 101, if you will. Sure. Uh, well, at the federal level, if you're just talking about federal law, because there's obviously state laws. Some states have assault weapons bans on the book. There's, uh, you know, not a lot, but a, but some of the bigger ones like California and, and New York have them. Uh, but at the federal level, there there aren't many outright bans on firearms at this point. Um, you have an outright ban on the new sale of fully automatic machine guns. Um, that, that was put in place in 1986. So you can't like go to a gun store today and buy a brand new, uh, you know, <laughs> mod deuce or something. Uh, you, you can't buy anything fully automatic. That's brand new. Now that you can th buy the older ones that existed before that law passed, uh, that, that are covered under what's called the national firearms act, the NFA, um, which regulates things like fully automatic firearms from before 1986, which are now extremely expensive um, if you did want to try to buy one of those uh, and very time intensive in, in getting the registration and paperwork required for it. But you can buy them, uh, but they're like five figures at the cheapest for one. And, uh, you know, that's where silencers or suppressors are, are found in that law too, in the same sort of regulation, except that you can buy new man, new manufactured ones. So you can buy brand new silencers and suppressors today and they're actually pretty popular uh there's a couple million of them uh out there and, and registered but you, you know it requires registration and a 200 dollars tax stamp and that can take nine months to a year to complete uh so you know a normal gun you can go a normal handgun or rifle semi-automatic rifle that fires one shot per trigger pull you can go into a store and buy those in most states the same instantaneously the, the background check system is literally called the national instant criminal background check system uh it's not always doesn't always live up to the name but that's the concept uh, and so you can buy a regular gun that's not under the nfa and just walk out with it in most states as long as you pass 
the background check. And um, but when it comes to certain a few classes of guns like machine guns, silencers and suppressors, I mean, they're not guns, but you get the idea. Uh, short barreled shotguns, short barreled rifles um, are, are also under this this law, the National Firearms Act. Um, and they, they also require registration and a tax stamp and paperwork in this long waiting period um, to get. That's why some people have uh, one of the more recent controversies. One of the things that President Biden wants to do is uh, effectively ban uh, what are called pistol braces. So the way that the law is drawn up, this is a law from 1934. It was in response to the gangland era, Al Capone and Machine Gun Kelly and all those people that we all know from movies. Um, but the, this is the first big federal gun control law was in response to that stuff. And so it went after things like Tommy guns and sh- sawed off shotguns and, and the like. So that's why they're, they're in this, this uh, somewhat convoluted federal law. But the way that they define some of these terms leaves a lot of gray area. So uh, something like an AR-15, like I have behind me here, uh, if you had a, if I had a barrel on that, that was shorter than 16 inches, uh, it would be classified as a short barrel rifle because I have a regular shoulder stock on it. But if, if I take that shoulder stock off, or if I made this gun without a shoulder stock, um, and instead put on a what's called a pistol brace, then it's not designed to be pressed against my shoulder anymore. Uh, and so it can be classified as a pistol if it has a barrel shorter than 16 inches. I don't know if, how much that's going to make sense to people <laughs> uh, who haven't heard of this before, because yeah. it's obviously not <laughs> a very easy kind of thing to get your head around. But that's the con- that's one of the big controversies right now. So millions of these pistol braces have been sold in the last decade or so uh, because the ATF had said that they're legal to buy and they don't constitute short barrel rifles. So you don't need to go through the whole NFA process to own them. And so a lot of people did that. And now uh, President Biden wants to uh, effectively force people to either destroy those guns or register them and pay the tax stamp um, or turn them in. to the government. That's his proposal right now. It's going through the rulemaking process. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that's a big controversy. It stems from this old, uh, this old law, the national firearms act. Well, it is complicated. And if they don't understand it, that's at least a starting spot to go and look up these terms. What do they mean? Because when you hear about, um, you know, if there's a tragic event with a shooting, there's a lot of things about how we regulate it, what laws, and you start actually thinking about guns. And if you're not familiar with how they work practically and all the functionality, uh, it's more than just pulling a trigger and shooting. And so mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of good to hear someone kind of unpack this for people who aren't um, familiar because it, it gives them something to go research. Um, the other thing you mentioned I want to circle back around on is, um, you know, people, how they vote in Congress. Do you, just, you don't have to say names. Um but generally speaking, do you know if a bill is proposed, how the, the various members of Congress or the Senate will vote on it just by reading the language? Is it is it that easy to decipher or um, is it kind of hit or miss? It's not always that simple, right? Um, there's obviously signals as to whether or not a bill is a serious bill that's going to get real consideration. Um, for instance, uh, you know, it can really depend on who's introducing it. So mm-hmm. if someone like, uh, you know, 
Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's a, a fairly, uh, you know, a fringe sort of conspiracy theorist uh, representative, if she introduces a bill, it's probably not going anywhere. Right. It's probably more of a stunt. There's a lot of congressmen like that if they're backbenchers or they're more fringe uh, people. Uh, AOC, for example, uh, on the left, um, or there's, uh, you know, the, the squad, I guess, as they're called, mm-hmm. although they, they probably have, you know, there's sort of these more fringe elements on each side that, uh, that have more extreme beliefs and push for, for more extreme policies or, or introduce bills as basically forms of publicity for themselves. Right. Yeah. And, that's, and that's, so that's that had from guns, <laughs> just in yeah. general. <laughs> And so if you see someone like that introduce someone with a reputation like that, if they've never, if they've never sponsored a bill that actually made it into law, right. And there's a mm-hmm. lot of congressmen who've been in DC for decades, who've mm-hmm. never sponsored a bill that made it into law, then it's probably a sign that it's not necessarily a serious bill that's going to go anywhere. Uh, and it's really just going to grab attention if anything, but if a member of leadership, mm-hmm proposes a bill or co- signs onto a bill, co-sponsors a bill. Mm. That's another way you can tell too more easily is like, if there's a lot of co-sponsors on a bill, then it uh, has a more serious chance of passing. Although even in that case, it's like, okay, if, if the entire minority party in the house co-sponsors a bill, it doesn't really matter because they don't have control over whether it'll ever get voted on. Right. Um, unless they can get some Democrats on board. So you know, there's, you have to consider that, like, look at who's in power, who has the, the authority to bring bills to the floor, like in the house, especially mm-hmm. uh, the, the majority party in the house has way more control over what goes on than even than the Senate, uh, where it's more of a collaborative thing. It's not, you know, the majority party still has ultimate say over a lot of stuff, but it's not as uh, sort of draconian as the house yeah. where house leadership gets to decide what the heck is going to happen. Uh, at any given moment. Um, and it doesn't really matter ultimately what the minority party thinks about anything. Uh, you know, they, they might want to try to woo people for one reason or another from, from the other party, but they don't uh, generally have to do that. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that's probably the, uh, one of the easier tells. And then even, of course, even in the situation where, um, let's uh, take the house, Right. As an example, but you could do this for the Senate, too. Uh, you know, maybe maybe Nancy Pelosi passes. I mean, we could take the gun control bills from this this Congress. The The House has passed two gun control bills, the universal background check bill that we, we discussed earlier and um, a bill to shorten the uh, amount of. Well, to sorry, to lengthen the amount of time that the FBI has to investigate um delayed background checks um to the point where it would almost it would effectively someone could get caught in an infinite loop of delays um without ever having a a conclusion reached as to whether they're actually prohibited from owning guns but so the house passed this these two bills right um they made it through that they got it through they barely did they only passed by you know a margin of one or two votes in each case but you know, you think, well, okay, that's a serious bill then because it passed the democratically controlled house. So Democrats control the Senate and the presidency and the president supports all this stuff. Uh, and a lot of the Democrats in the Senate support it openly, but 
realistically, there's not much of a chance that either of those things ever make it into law because, as you know, as I talked about before, you need 60 votes in the Senate. And even if they eliminated the filibuster, you would still need 50 votes at least. And as things stand now, one, they're not going to eliminate the filibuster. And two, they don't have 50 votes for either one of those bills uh, in the in the Senate. They don't have 50 Democrats. <laughs> in midterms, I mean, midterm races are coming yep. up soon. So everyone. And they so, don't have a lot of time left. Yeah. Right. So people are moving more to the center, uh, less want to pass mm-hmm. controversial bills. And so the time is oh, running right. out on that. Yep. Um, okay. So a couple of quick more policy general things. And then I want to talk about some of the stories from this week. Um, you mentioned the UBI. Just kind of quickly go over, um, you know, again, when, when there's a big shooting or something, people are like, oh, we need to make tougher, uh, tougher to buy guns. You got the gun uh, show loophole. There's all the talking points that you know far mm-hmm. better than I do. Maybe hit some facts, some myths, um, and just what generally people should know about that. And again, yeah, we have the state stuff that, that kind of. Sure. Yeah. I mean, of course, some, some states have universal background checks already. Uh, a number of states have that policy in place. And what, it, what a universal background check bill does is um, I think it's it's important to understand how federal law actually regulates gun sales right now. What we do, what the the Gun Control Act of 1964 actually did was create a licensing system for commercial dealers um, uh, and manufacturers and so forth. But if you want to sell guns commercially in the United States, you need to obtain a, a license. It's called a federal firearms license. And that's why that's why you'll hear gun dealers called FFLs uh, oftentimes because they have a, a federal firearms license. They're federal firearms licensees. So um, <clears throat> anyone who's selling guns commercially and uh, needs that license, and then that license requires that every sale uh, made to uh, you know a regular customer has to go through a NICS check, the, the National Institute Criminal Background Check System. Uh, before the sale can be completed, unless uh, unless the delay, you know, sometimes the the FBI can delay someone to investigate their their uh, background further if they see some some indication that they there's something they haven't completely figured out yet, um, and they have three days to to complete that before the sale can go through as sort of a safeguard against just infinite delays. But uh, but of course the FBI. Even after that period, they can continue to investigate. And if they figure out someone is prohibited, they can go and take their gun away from them, uh, which happens uh, about a thousand times a year, or maybe a little bit more than that. Um, And uh, so the system is based on commercial sales. It's based on licensing of commercial sellers. There's no license requirement for a private sale. If you don't sell guns, as a business, if you're not trying to make a profit doing it, it's not part of, it's not like a job for you. Then, uh, like if you're just selling your use gun, your used guns after, you know, you're done with them or you want to clear out some of your collection or you need to recoup some money, whatever. Like as long as you're not doing it as a business, if you're not in the business of selling firearms, you don't need a license. And so you don't need to conduct, conduct background checks on your sales to, uh, other people, Uh, There are additional rules like you can't sell handguns across state lines um, currently. So, you you know, you can't take your handgun in Texas and go to Oklahoma and sell to somebody there. Uh, At least you can't do it legally. And so there there are a few rules even for private sellers at this point. 
but um and you can't sell guns to someone that you believe you have reason to believe is prohibited from owning guns so like criminals and and uh you know people who've been dishonorably discharged from the military or or uh who have been committed as a you know adjudicated mentally ill as a threat to themselves or others that that kind of thing um but there's no general requirement for someone who's selling a, a gun of their personal used gun to another uh person in their state to to do a background check so that's what they want to change right advocates of universal background checks because under universal background checks all sales have to doesn't matter if it's a licensed dealer or a private individual every sale has to be made through a licensed dealer essentially like if you wanted to sell your used gun to your neighbor you'd have to go to a gun store and have them process the transaction and do a background check on your neighbor they probably charge you some sort of fee for that of course but um that's how it works and then some of these proposals like the ones that the one that the house passed that's how most of the state laws like the one here in virginia uh, that they passed recently is just deals with sales, like actual sale of a gun um, to a third party. But the House bill would take it a step further and require every transfer to be to require a background check to go through a licensed dealer because that licensed dealers are the only ones who have access to the system. You can't a regular private individual can't get access to NICS and just run background checks willy nilly. That's not how it works. So instead, you'd have to take your gun to a gun dealer, have them do the background check for you before you can legally transfer it. Uh, otherwise, it's uh, it's a crime, a federal crime. But um, this bill, yeah, it wouldn't just be on sales. It would be any any transfer that's not to like a family member or for hunting purposes or, you know, uh, uh, if, if you're just showing someone a gun at, at the range. But for instance, like I said earlier, if, if you wanted to let somebody borrow a gun because they were afraid for their they fear for their safety, right? They have a threat or something against them. You know, I've done this with at the height of the pandemic. I had lent a gun to friends um, who were worried about everything that was going on. And um, that would have been illegal under the house proposal because I'm not related to them and it wasn't for hunting or whatever else. It was, uh, there's no exception for self-defense, um, uh, you know, a general self-defense concern. So, that's how these bills work. You know, you, you, you mentioned the gun show loophole, right? Well, it really has nothing to do with gun shows. There's no special carve out in the law for gun shows. Uh, gun shows, um, the, the reason they get brought up, I guess, is because people tend to do private sales at gun shows. But mo you know, every gun show I've been to, most of the people selling guns there are licensed dealers. So they still yeah. have to do the background check and all that at the gun show. Uh, it's only people who are private sellers who don't have to do background checks. And you can only do that if you're not, uh, you're not trying to do it as a business. Uh, so, well, I mean, to, uh, to take what you said a minute ago, you would have to have, I'm, I don't know, theoretically a booth at a gun show. That's like all knives. And you have like one pistol, sitting there one gun sitting there like oh by the way yeah i'll say this i guess maybe but i bought a gun i mean i to your point if you go to a gun show those are all dealers i bought a gun from a gun show i had to get a background check a lot of them are yeah you know and so uh you know if you've got 40 guns up there it's kind of hard to argue that you're not a dealer <laughs> right and so yeah i mean there's probably a valid criticism about enforcement of that i guess uh yeah, right, atf that. is not a very big organization <laughs> 
it's really relative. It's smaller than the Capitol Police, actually. Um, uh, I'm sure most people don't realize that, but so yeah, they're not necessarily at every gun show policing this, but, um, so I'm sure there are people who probably should be licensed, but aren't, uh, selling and okay. uh, are out there selling guns. So that, I mean, that's, there's some legitimate complaint about how well the, uh, uh restrictions are enforced perhaps, but, uh, but yeah, most of what you hear about it, uh, especially in, in media are, lies essentially mm -hmm. right there, there's no gun show loophole it's not a thing it doesn't yeah. exist uh there's no like special carve out in the gun control act for gun shows it, it doesn't there is it isn't there um and so if it, the only thing that matters is whether or not the seller is a licensed dealer um that's what determines whether or not they have to do a background check when you buy a gun from them okay so you mentioned the atf you have been in a ruckus the past few days over your story on the ATF. Um, they are getting ready to, or trying to nominate, I guess, a new head of the ATF, Chipman. Um, you kind of broke a story. I'll let you unpack it because it's your story. Yeah, President Biden nominated a former ATF agent named David Chipman to be the director of the ATF. Um, and he's going through the confirmation process now. He, he's had his hearing in which he... Uh, uh, actually, in a question from Senator Ted Cruz from Texas, a uh, Republican from Texas, asked him about uh, two complaints that exist uh, against him um, from his time at ATF uh, back when he uh, first worked there. Uh, in, in the intervening years, he's worked for gun control groups. He, right now, he, he works for um, the Giffords uh, gun control group. Uh, and, but back when he was at the ATF, there were two complaints filed against him, which he confirmed the existence of, but said that they had been resolved uh, essentially without punishment. Um, and so there is a FOIA lawsuit that came out, uh, was filed last month in which uh, the, the people who filed it claim that uh, an ATF agent, a uh, black ATF agent filed a complaint against Chipman for uh, denigrating black officers who had, who were up for promotion. The claim is that he said uh the too many black officers had passed this assessment for the promotion and that they must have cheated uh, in order to do that. And, and so the, this claim had been out there, but no, you know, there, so when I heard it, I thought, well, uh, you know, we don't know if it's true or not. Uh, I should see if uh, anyone else in the ATF had heard this story because at the very least, um, you know, we, we can know if this story was you know, just made up now, you know, there's some possibility that could have just been made up when these people filed this suit. Um, but that's not the case. Um, I was able to speak to several ATF agents who had heard this story independent of this lawsuit. Uh, and, uh, you know, back before it was filed. Uh, and I had the, in fact, a current agent had heard it years, uh, years ago. So, um, essentially we, now have a confirmation or corroboration that these, that this uh, allegation exists against him. Um, his complaints have not been released by the administration. Um, uh, this FOIA lawsuit has, has not been concluded yet. So that hasn't been able to get at the, the complaints. The white house has not responded to requests for comment uh, or David Shipman uh, requests for comment from David Shipman either. So we don't have a denial um, of any of this. We don't have any, any further explanation on, on 
whether or not this happened, uh, what the circumstances were, uh, what David Chipman's side of this is, um, which I'd be interested in hearing for sure. Obviously, he's up for um, uh, an important role as director of uh, the agency that regulates the gun industry. And um, I think people deserve transparency on on what's going on with him. He claims that these were resolved. Um, so uh, I, I don't see why people shouldn't be able to read them for themselves, uh, you know? Uh, and so you've had, uh, since the story broke, you had um, all of the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee write a letter to the chairman asking for a new hearing on David Chipman to explore these allegations to try and investigate them. Uh, and you had Mitch McConnell, who's the minority leader in the Senate, uh, the Republican um, call for President Biden to withdraw his nomination. Shipman uh, has been in a state of, uh, his nomination has been a state of limbo for a while now. He has uh, um, not gotten enough support to, to make it through yet. Mm -hmm. um, all of the Republicans, including the moderate Republicans like um, uh, Susan Collins of Maine, uh, Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, they've come out and said they won't vote for him even before these allegations uh, were corroborated. So uh, now you have um, John Tester of Montana as a Democrat, uh, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, and uh, Angus King of Maine. Uh, and they're all on the fence about voting for him. They haven't committed to voting for him or against him at this point. So it, it's, it's still up in the air as to whether or not he, uh, whether or not we'll ever get those complaints released or whether or not he'll ever even be put up for a vote to be confirmed. So real quick, maybe connect this for me. How did Ted Cruz find out about the allegations? Does he have, is it something in the, in the information, the, the research that he did, or is it just a rumor he had heard and he was asking to see uh, if Shipman could confirm it? Because um, you have the FOIA request, which is the Freedom of Information Act that, that people, uh, I don't know if it's your group or someone is, is going oh, for. Me. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so Cruz somehow, how, do we know how Cruz knew about this? Uh, no, I, I'm not sure how Cruz okay. knew about the so Cruz, I guess what I'm asking is Cruz didn't pull up like an employment record, go, Hey, you know, according to your file back in whenever this happened, he just kind of off he, the cuff mentioned it. I mean, he may have, I, I'm not sure what he, how yeah. Senator Cruz came to know of the, the complaints. Uh, uh, he didn't ask this in the televised, um, yeah. in the, in the in-person hearing, he asked it in, in written questions. To Chipman, so uh, all we ha all we know is that he asked him about these complaints and that Chipman confirmed they existed, but said that they'd been resolved and didn't give any details as to what was in the complaints. I don't know if Senator Cruz knew about the details, the alleged details of the complaints sure. when when he asked the questions about them, either. Um, that it seems like that didn't come out until the first allegations didn't come out until after uh, mm -hmm. this exchange, but. Um, uh, but now we have several ATF agents saying that this is a story that they heard while they were at the ATF or from ATF, uh, uh, you know, uh, agents. And so uh, it, I think that it could be cleared up as if, I mean, if the, there's some possibility that this is not true, right. Or that right. this, Obviously. or that this complaint was uh, filed in uh, you know, is a, is a false complaint. Maybe, maybe, maybe the person who made the complaint isn't telling the truth. We don't, I don't, I can't corroborate that. I can't verify that part of it. Um, but an easy way to find out it would be to release the complaints 
and uh, go over them. Else. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that's well, really all, all that uh, I would advocate for at this point as a reporter is like we sh why shouldn't the public be able to see these complaints? I mean, he's up for it's not like it's not like he's just a regular guy now. I mean, he's up for the director position of the ATF. Right. Um, it doesn't seem like an unreasonable thing to uh, get verification on on what's inside of these these complaints filed against him. Um, these were complaints with the uh, Equal Opportunity, uh, um, you know, uh, review board inside of the ATF. So um, they they have something to to do with uh, some sort of discriminatory complaint, in, in presumably. So. Uh, I don't know what they are. There's supposed to be two of them. Uh, one of them is supposed to be related to this, uh, the, these racist comments he's alleged to have made. But uh, he hasn't even denied that he made the comments. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, you know, it's hard to, right. it's hard to just conclude that this is all made. I mean, uh, my sources are, are certainly real. I talk directly mm -hmm. to them. I can stand behind them 100%. And uh, they heard these stories. I mean, they also have concerns beyond this particular incident they called uh, you know one of the reasons that the two of them didn't want to be identified is because they're afraid of reprisals by chipman if he were confirmed um you know one of them called him uh, said he has a reputation for being a bully and worried that he could reassign agents that he doesn't like to far-flung posts so that that's why they aren't uh on record with their names um you know, obviously it's always better from my point of view as a reporter, if some, if I have a source who's, uh, you know, using their, their, their name, but that's not always possible because sometimes people have legitimate reasons why they, they can't have their name, uh, made public because they could be, they could face retribution at their job or, or they could be, you know, in, in other cases, obviously they could face physical harm if they're, uh, you know, if, if someone is, uh, you know, it's giving you information about a criminal operation or something like that. Um, uh, that's not the case here, but certainly these, these age agents fear <clears throat> that their livelihood could be ruined yeah. or that they could have to uproot their families and move across the country. Uh, you know, if, if they're identified and then Chipman uses his authority as director, if he gets confirmed to, you know, enact some revenge basically. Right. which is a legitimate concern. Yeah, the unnamed source thing is is always a, a, a tough thing to balance, right? Because I think kind of how you've unpacked this is what you, if I've if I understood your position correctly, is that there are these allegations. Chipman has seemed to confirm what we believe these allegations are. That doesn't mean the allegations were real or they weren't dealt. We, we don't know much more beyond that. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I think when you see modern media kind of paint the broad brush here, sometimes it's like, well, here are allegations and they must be true because my sources told me. It's like, well, okay, that. <laughs> your sources could could have heard wrong i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of potential um just because a source sure. tells you something um and so your source and i'm not picking on you here a source might not want to come forward because they're making it up and therefore they don't want to get in trouble um, or it could be all the things that you listed and so sure. part of the thing in modern media is we had to think about the possible we're, we're very bad at committing the either or fallacy right um and so exploring the possibilities i think was what brings credibility to the journalist who wants to use um, unnamed sources, and oftentimes uh, we don't see that. So I, I appreciate the way that you you unpack that because I think that's a, kind of a breath of fresh air. Yeah, and, I, and and that's why also it's important as a reporter to reach out to the people that you're writing about, which I did in this case. Um, I reached out to the White House several times 
and didn't get any response from them. The ATF uh, responded by saying that they can't comment on uh, nominees and referred me to the White House and the DOJ. DOJ didn't respond and neither did the White House. So it's, you know, uh, I if they had responded, I would have put that response in the story, but they, they didn't. They haven't said anything to this point. Um, you've had some <clears throat> uh, gun control groups have, have tried to, uh, you know, attack me personally uh, over the story. Um, but they, even they don't have any, they haven't brought up any sort of <clears throat> evidence that what these agents have told me is not true. They just say, that, I mean, they try to claim that it's all made up basically, which is the classic right. you know, attack on, on, uh, on journalism. But, <clears throat> you know, it, it's, I'm not as I'm not so much concerned about smears from, you know, people like that as I am to actual response from David Shipman or the White House or, or anyone involved who could say no, this this isn't true or this, or uh, you know that explain that the this these allegations were were false or the you know we the ATF investigated this and found that they weren't true or you know something along those lines would be. You know, those are all possibilities, but nobody has put forth that argument from the White House or David Chipman himself. So we don't we don't know exactly. All we have is what people are telling us, um, you know, in, in terms of what he's alleged to have said. So uh, I'd be very interested to see some sort of uh, response to that from him or the White House. Okay. Last question, and we'll get you out of here. Uh, you have a story. Ted Nugent resigns from the NRA. Maybe just unpack this, what is the status of the NRA? I know we get this limited time here. So, just high level, you know, they were going to court. They filed for bankruptcy. Ted Nugent's leaving, and he wants to transparency uh, the books. I know I've asked you a loaded question, but well, <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't know how much time we have left. I'm okay on time. If you, I know, I, I'm okay on time, but I want to respect your time. So, yes. Well, so I would just say that, like, I, I can try to give you a, a broad overview of uh, uh, of the situation. It's funny, too, because you had these gun control groups uh, try to label me as, like, part of the gun lobby and, and uh, you know, part of well, me and with the NRA. But the NRA is not very happy with my reporting all the time uh, that they don't like when I write stories that they they don't want to see out there, um, you know, some of the leadership there. And, uh, and presumably this Ted Nugent one would, would be in that, that vein. Uh, Ted Nugent is resigning from the board. He's probably their most famous board member at this point. Um, I mean, they have a couple of celebrity board members. I think Carmel own is still on the board. I believe Tom Selleck used to be on the board until 2018, but, um, uh, and then obviously Charlton Heston was president, uh, years, years back, but, uh, uh, you know, Ted Nugent, the the rocker, and who's made some very ins awful and crazy comments over the years, but also has been a longtime uh, um, NRA booster and, and supporter. He's he's leaving now. The NRA uh, told board members that it was due to a schedule conflict, an ongoing schedule conflict, but Ted Nugent hasn't um, responded to why he's left yet. So it'll be interesting to see if he ever makes comment. He did back in 2019 um, when this whole mess at the NRA began. Um, Nugent was uh, one of the board members who wanted, who said that he wanted, you know, total transparency and he wanted to open up the books to 
you know, see what's going on inside of the NRA and give accountability to the membership. Um, but now he's, he said that was his main reason for being a board member, um, was to bring, you know, accountability for the members. And so, uh, but now he's leaving, um, and he's just latest in a number of board members who've resigned over the last two years. I think you're up to like seven or eight at this point. Of course, the NRA board has 76 board members. So, uh, you know, they're, they're obviously a minority of the total board, which still uh, overall supports CEO Wayne LaPierre um, mm. in his role there. So uh, just to be clear about all that. But um Essentially, this all began when allegations surfaced uh, in the New Yorker that Wayne LaPierre and other executives have been um, essentially funneling money to personal expenses, funneling NRA money, membership money to NRA expenses, things like private jets, fancy suits, uh, luxury vacations, um, and, and you know, even they uh, even at one point explored purchasing uh, Wayne LaPierre, uh, a $6 million uh, mansion in uh, Dallas. Uh, that never came to fruition, but uh, it was something that the, the organization looked into doing for him. Um, but, uh, you know, these allegations started a big internal fight back in 2019 at the annual meeting um, that ended with the ouster of uh, Oliver North as the president uh, after he accused Wayne LaPierre of, uh, you know, essentially trying of stealing the taking money from the NRA and LaPierre accused North of trying to extort him into resigning. Uh, and they've, they've, then they went have had a big legal fight with their former uh, top contractor, Ackerman McQueen, which was, uh, you know, they're, company they were spending like 40 million dollars a year on uh at one point um and that they've worked with for 30 years um and actually that orchestrated the uh presidency of of uh charlton heston back in the 90s uh, and then now the new york attorney general has is suing them uh trying to dissolve the organization completely shut it down uh, over these uh, allegations of financial impropriety of uh, essentially diverting NRA money into, you know, executives' pockets um, to the tune of, I mean, tens of millions of dollars over several decades. Um, I believe she even, yeah, it's a, a lot of money essentially is, is at, uh, you know, in play here. And, um, the NRA recently tried to file bankruptcy in Texas as a ploy to, uh, you know, as a strategy to try and avoid the New York lawsuit or at least give themselves better ground to fight it on. They'd rather fight it in Texas than in New York for probably fairly obvious reasons, right? Um, and to be fair, uh, Letitia James, the attorney general in New York, she's a Democrat and she ran on going after the NRA. Um, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. She called them a terrorist organization. So there's certainly some legitimacy to the complaints that the NRA has about her objectivity in this matter, I guess. Um, but also that doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't, that they didn't do a lot of, a lot of these things. 
Um, so, you know, it's, you have to keep all the, all those things in mind when you're looking at this case, but the bankruptcy failed because the NRA is, well, for one, it's not bankrupt. They have, uh, you don't technically need to be financially insolvent to file for bankruptcy, but the NRA was in good enough financial situation that the judge said, you don't, you know, it's not legitimate to pursue this path, especially with the, you know, essentially overt claims that you're trying to use bankruptcy court to circumvent or uh, at least to uh, uh, mess with the New York AG's suit against you. So they lost that bankruptcy, um, you know, case. And um, now they are, they spent like $25 million on that failed bankruptcy too. Um, and so now they're back in New York's uh, grasp, I guess you could say. And um, we're kind of waiting for uh, that at this point, kind of waiting for to see how that all plays out and whether or not James is able to, to get what she wants, which is frankly uh, unprecedented. There really hasn't ever been a case of, uh, a group of the size of the NRA being sh completely shut down over uh, financial impropriety accusations against some of its executives and its board. Um, but uh, I guess we'll see what happens. Hey, well, after 2020, everything's on the table. <laughs> you never know. We're living in a in strange times. So, mm -hmm. okay. I know we are a few minutes past. I appreciate your time. Um, the reload dot com is where you can find the publication and uh, we'll link to your tw twitter handle as well anything else you want to plug or promote no uh the we have a free newsletter uh that goes out every week so i think uh you know people can sign up for that if they want to see what it's like and then uh and then hopefully maybe sign up for a membership down the line uh if they want to support what we're doing here because it is completely reader funded uh there's no there are no shady deals with any uh, anyone out there, uh, and my whole dedication is to the members. Uh, that's who I, the only people I owe anything to, uh, are the the members who support um, what we're doing. So awesome! Well, thank you so much for your time, listeners. Uh, this is Friday, so we'll be back three or four shows next week, and we'll talk to you then.